What is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Sean Jones NBA Show. We certainly had some big, big news this past weekend. Bradley Beal has been traded to the Phoenix Suns in a pretty unexpected turn of events. So I'm going to talk all about that trade, uh, what this means for Phoenix in the short term and the long term, uh, specifically when it comes to their cap situation. Uh, Then I will talk about the Washington side of things and wrap up with what this means for Chris Paul and what's next for him. Uh, But with that, let's get right into it. So starting off from the Sun side of things here, I just want to start off by saying I did not see this coming as even a possibility for Phoenix. I know that there had been plenty of rumors about Beal potentially coming available This offseason, and even some people going as far as to say that it was more likely than not that he would be dealt. But I just didn't think Phoenix was going to be a player in this at all, Uh, just given the lack of flexibility they already kind of had with their roster. I don't even know that it was on the table, uh, considering how many assets that they've been depleted of, just mostly from the Kevin Durant trade. But my initial reaction to the Suns even being interested in this was that they probably just shouldn't even pursue it. Uh, and there's, I mean, there's two reasons why. The main one is just the contract. I mean, Beal is owed over $207 million over the next four seasons. So that's more than $50 million on average per season for four years. He's about to turn 30, so that'll get him um, into his early to mid-30s. He'll be 33, I believe, when the contract uh, wraps up. But he also has the no-trade clause, which (laughs) only play in the league with one, and I'm not sure we'll see one again after this one. Um, But that basically would have, and it does, guarantee that they're going to be a second apron uh, tax-paying team, which for those of you who don't know, that's a new thing in the new collective uh, bargaining agreement that starts this July, and there's some pretty uh, intensive restrictions that get put on you if you're above that second apron. Uh, One of the big ones is you cannot sign anyone to a mid-level exception. So they basically have a a mid-level salary that you can deal out to any player, regardless of your cap situation. If you're not a taxpayer, even if you're over the cap, I believe this year it was going to be around $12 million. Uh, And then they have a taxpayer um, mid-level exception as well. That's half of that. So it's around $6 million if you're uh, above the, the tax threshold as well. But if you're above that second tax apron, you don't even get that at all. You can only sign pl- people to minimum contracts. Additionally, you can't sign anyone who is bought out that makes greater than $12 million. And I will say most players who get bought out are on big contracts. So this pretty much would eliminate them from signing any legitimate uh buyout candidates. So for example, Kevin Love wouldn't have been able to sign with the Suns this year. They also have restrictions on your draft picks. So you can trade picks up to seven years out. But if you are in the second apron, that furthest out draft pick the seven years away becomes frozen and you cannot deal it. And then it's actually moved to the end of the first round, regardless of your record. If you are a repeat offender three out of five years, which if they made this trade, they are almost guaranteed to be. So that pick is going to be 30th 
basically no matter what, even if they are the worst team in the league. Uh, they also cannot trade out aggregated salaries. So, for example, it, they cannot trade DeAndre Ayton and Cameron Payne in a trade together. They can get multiple players back for a guy like Ayton, but they cannot put two salaries together to do so. So all of this comes to fruition when they make this trade. So that contract is just guaranteeing that they're going to be in that second apron. And then the second part here is just the stylistic fit. So in many ways, Beal is sort of an older, just worse version of Booker. And they also just don't really have a true point guard on the roster now because Chris Paul is gone. And Cameron Payne is a, a okay combo guard backup, but he's still not really a pass-first kind of guy. And so they're, they're going to be forced to either play Booker at point guard or go super small and play Beal or Booker at the three, which is just not super sustainable when you look at the rest of the league. And there's teams like the Clippers who have Kawhi Leonard playing small forward, LeBron James playing small forward for the Lakers, and one of these guys is going to have to guard those two, um, or one of them, if, if they do go that route. And so I think if only one of these things were the case, it's a total no-brainer. You don't even think twice about it. If he's on a reasonable contract, like 20, 25 million a year, even though the fit isn't great, I think it's totally fine. You just say, look, this is a talent play. We're still going to have some flexibility. we got to make this trade every time, I say. And let's say the contract is huge, but it's a seamless fit. So let's say Beal is a um, point guard, true point guard playmaker, or he's a wing that plays high-level defense as well. Then I think you feel really good about it because you're willing to take the contract on just because of the potential you have and how you're likely going to be one of the champion favorites, if not the favorites, uh, because of how good the fit is. But because both of those things are true that it's a bad contract and the fit isn't perfect. It absolutely has to make you think twice about pulling the trigger on this one. Um, and so that was kind of my thoughts before they were even mentioned as a player in this. And to be honest, so far, I feel like the national media has mostly just been kind of shitting on them for it. That, uh, people are not a huge fan of this trade from what I've seen so far. And the biggest cons that I've seen people call out are, one, they're... The Suns' limitations in being able to fill out the rest of the roster. I keep hearing, oh, what about their bench? What about their depth? They can't make any moves now. Uh, the second one being that uh, Beal has not been very durable in the past few seasons. He's been pretty injury-prone for four years now. And then the third one being just concerns over redundancy and skill sets between their star players. It's not the most seamless big three we've seen, if you want to call it that. Um like the, the Celtics big three certainly had more complementary skill sets. Uh, we've seen the, like the Warriors and their uh, big three or even big four was extremely complementary. Um, and so there was just, there's definitely question marks there from a lot of people. But so I'm going to address a, a few of these. The first one I'm going to talk through is the durability piece. So it's certainly slightly fair. I mean, over the last four seasons, Beal's played 57 games, 60 games, 40 games, and 50 games. So he's only played 60 once in the past four, four seasons and never more than that. But I think there is some context you do need to put around this. For example, two of those seasons were shortened seasons due to COVID. There was only 72 games played in both 2020 and 2021. And in those two years, that was when he played 57 and 60. So 
he missed 15 or less in both of those seasons. That's uh, 12 missed games one year, 15 missed games uh, one year as well, which is totally reasonable and extremely on par with other star players. I mean, they just created that rule where you have to play 65 games to be eligible for major awards. And that's set missing 17 games. So he could miss 15 and still have played enough to be eligible. And if you look at stars across the league, I mean, playing 70-plus games is not a very common thing anymore. I mean, playing 80 is, like, unheard of. There's only a few guys that do it, if not, like, just one. I know Mikel Bridges is <laughs> the durability god in the league right now. But even playing 70, it's just not very frequent. I mean, you're not going to sit here and be like, Devin Booker is a super injury-prone guy, but he didn't play 60 this year. Um, and so it's it's fair, those two years. I don't think anyone's like, wow, it's super uh, injury-laden season by Beal that year. And then two years ago when he played only 40, he did have season-ending wrist surgery that made him miss the last 32 games of the whole season. So I, that's kind of like, a, what are you going to do? He, he injured his wrist. He had surgery. It was a one-off incident. It's not like he's got some lingering wrist issue or anything like that. So that happens. Players have seasons where they have to get surgery or stuff like that. It's it's pretty frequent for most players at some point in their career. And then lastly, um, last year he was a little banged up throughout most of the season. And also the last like 10-ish games of the year, they held him out due to uh, tanking, lobbying for draft position. So he very well could have played close to 60 last year as well. Not to mention, <laughs> I feel like Beal has been the most likely player to go into health and safety protocol among like basically any player in the whole league since COVID started. I think each of the three of the four past seasons or something like that, he, he missed at least a handful of games. So some of those, I don't think he necessarily had COVID or he broke protocol. I don't know what it was, but that has to be taken into consideration as well. So while he has not been overly durable, I'm not going to argue that. I think that there's some context to say, like, I don't think, we should just go into every season saying, yeah, I guess he's only going to play 50 this year. Um, I mean, theoretically, he's close to his physical prime. He's 29 years old right now. So this is not some AD or Zion situation where we haven't seen them be healthy for more than 10 games at a time. Um, and I also just don't think we can assume injury for guys, except for maybe a Zion type. Like, people get injured. It happens. Uh, and We've seen guys start their careers with a ton of injuries and then, suddenly they're super healthy for the rest of their career out of nowhere and vice versa. So I wouldn't read too much into it uh, on that. So next, in terms of addressing the limited roster flexibility, so look, I'm not going to sit here and argue that they don't have extremely, extremely limited roster flexibility. But people who think this trade is the reason for that, just they don't understand the Suns cap situation before the trade or now they just you, you need to look into it more before you say that this trade is what's causing that because before this trade it had been reported that the Suns uh, were likely going to waive Chris Paul regardless and so here basically here are the four options that they had in regards to the Chris Paul situation option one they don't make this trade they waive Chris Paul but they don't stretch him. They just wave him, and then they hope that they could potentially bring him back on a minimum deal. That was reported that maybe they could wave him and then still re-sign him just to save $15 million on the cap. Uh, there's obviously risks in that because he could still sign elsewhere. 
and you could potentially lose him for nothing. But with this option, you do get below the second tax apron, and you have access to your full taxpayer mid-level exception, which, as I mentioned before, is around $6 million. However, if you do sign that, you hard cap yourself, uh, which means you cannot go under the over the cap uh, or over a certain number under any circumstance. So basically, option one, they potentially lose Chris Paul, hopefully don't, and the benefits of that are they can use this extra $6 million on a player, but if they do, it would hard cap them. But other than that, they can only add guys via the minimum uh, veteran contract. Option two, they don't make the trade, and they waive and stretch the remainder of Chris Paul's contract. So with this option, you cannot re-sign Chris Paul, and therefore you would lose him for nothing. Um, So that asset's just gone. That salary's gone. This does get you below the tax threshold altogether, though, so you can have full access to the uh, non-taxpayer mid-level exception, which is around $12 million. So the benefit of this is you get to sign someone for up to $12 million, or you could sign two guys for $6 million, however you want to use that exception. But outside of the uh, $12 million, you lose Chris Paul, and again, you can only sign everyone else to minimums beyond that. The third option here is that you don't make a trade at all, and you just bring Chris Paul back on his guaranteed $30 million contract to make sure that you have him on the roster. So this one, you guarantee to have Chris Paul, but this does still put you above the second apron. So again, you have no access to your mid-level exceptions, and this puts you in all the restrictions that I mentioned earlier, but it's only for one more year because Chris Paul's contract is non-guaranteed for next season. And then option four is that they make this trade for Bradley Beal, which obviously, as I said, puts you above the second apron and you have no access to your mid-level exception. And obviously Chris Paul is gone, but you have replaced him with a better, younger player in Bradley Beal. So in total, your options in terms of flexibility to add to the roster were the following. You could add a free agent for around $6 million, potentially risk losing Chris Paul for nothing, and then fill out everyone else with minimums. Or you could add a free agent for around $12 million, but you for sure lose Chris Paul for nothing and then fill out the roster with minimum players. Or you can keep Chris Paul and guarantee you keep him and then fill out the roster with minimum players. Or you can swap Chris Paul for Bradley Beal and fill out the roster with minimum players. So basically, the only advantage to not doing this deal was to either keep Chris Paul or have the cap space to sign one player for a maximum of $12 million. So I'll just ask you, do, is there any free agent player that you think the Suns could have added for $12 million that's available that is a better addition than Bradley Beal? Maybe a better fit, but a better player, a better um, ceiling for the team. And, and that's without having Chris Paul. And you could hope to bring Chris Paul back, but then you only get $6 million max. So that is just limits the player pool even more. Even if you wanted to get someone like a Brooke Lopez to, and trade Aiton, that's, that you're not getting Brooke Lopez for $6 million. You're not getting a Kyle Kuzma for $12 million. All the top guys are still completely out of range, so you're settling for a middle-tier player. Um, when you can have a <laughs> borderline all-star in Bradley Beal. Um so you can have Chris Paul and all minimum players, or you can maybe have Chris Paul and get one player for $6 million, or you can definitely not have Chris Paul and get one player for $12 million, or you can have Bradley Beal and all minimum players. And I think we can all agree that Bradley Beal is the best player 
that they could get and a better player than Chris Paul at this stage of their career. They're just there's no chance they were going to get someone even remotely close to as good as Beal for six million or for twelve million. Not to mention that the twelve million or the six million still makes you hard capped, which gives you just about the same amount of roster inflexibility moving forward. And there was going to be a high chance that they lost Chris Paul for nothing. So if you want to talk about asset management and having flexibility to do things, losing a at least somewhat valuable asset like Chris Paul for absolutely nothing, to me, that is maybe the worst thing they could have done. And in all of these scenarios, they still keep Aiton and they can still trade him. So even with this Beal trade done, they can still trade DeAndre Ayton. I can't really, I haven't gotten a full read on if they're going to do that. I keep, I kind of have heard both sides. I kind of think they should only do it if it's the right deal. I would not want them to do it just to do it for a bad package, but I have no idea what his value is. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't mind them bringing him back into the season and just kind of seeing if uh, a different voice at head coach with Vogel, who's got a track record. Uh, bringing out the best, especially defensively in big men between Roy Hibbard and Anthony Davis and a number of other uh, even like backup bigs that he's gotten to play really well. He kind of revitalized Dwight Howard. JaVale McGee had some really good years with the Lakers as well. So I would be really interested to see if if he can do that. But regardless, they can still trade Aiton now. That's the flexibility they still have. And if they didn't do this trade, the flexibility they would have had was the same except maybe they can sign one other player at best, but not a player that's even remotely close to as good as Bradley Beal is, regardless of what you think of Bradley Beal at this stage of his career. And then in terms of the fit and the narrative that their skill sets are a bit redundant, I understand it to a certain degree, but I do think it's a little overblown. Uh, Devin Booker has shown that he can be a lead guard, at least in small sample sizes. Uh, he did have to do it a good bit before Chris Paul got the Phoenix. Before Chris Paul was there, they had Ricky Rubio for one season. But before that, they were rotating some atrocious guards in a point guard. I mean, they had Isaiah Cannon, Mike James, Tyler Eulis, um, Elia Kobo. I mean, they were putting guys out there who never even played another game for another team because they weren't NBA caliber players. <laughs> I think the best one they had maybe was Tyler Johnson, at least after they had gotten rid of Brandon Knight and uh, Bledsoe obviously was fine. But I'm talking about in between when they had Bledsoe and Chris Paul or Ricky Rubio. But he's used to having more responsibility there, at least earlier in his career. And he also did it a good bit in the playoffs this year. I mean, Chris Paul got hurt in game two. So for the fourth quarter of game two and then all of game three, game four, game five, game six, he was playing a lot of point guard. I mean, campaign was playing some, but not much. And they had Shamit in who can handle the ball a bit. But obviously the offense is not running through Landry Shamit or <laughs> when you've got Devin Booker on the court as well. Uh, and I think one of the biggest pros of him being the ball handler is they play with a lot more pace. Uh, I think Booker really thrives in transition. He's much, much improved as a driver to the basket from what he was earlier in his career. And it, we especially saw that in the playoffs. He was Really impressive getting downhill, going to the basket. And I actually thought the Suns looked their best against the Nuggets when they could get out and run. I thought some of the Chris Paul minutes, they slowed it down, and uh, they just weren't winning in the half court against that team. But when they were able to get out in transition, play with a little more pace, even when they when the Nuggets score off a of make, uh, the two games in Phoenix that they did win, those were 
some of the ways they were able to do it was just playing with a little bit more pace. Also, if you look at the games that Chris Paul's missed since Booker, uh, or since he's been in Phoenix with Booker, uh, Book has averaged basically seven assists a game in those, and obviously limit, limited sample size, same thing. It's only 26 games that he's played without Chris Paul, but still, I mean, we've seen him average six uh, assists in a season. He's up around seven since Paul got here when he doesn't play, and so I have no doubt that he could be a seven, eight assist guy uh, if he's got the ball in his hands more. And just to put a little more color uh, on that, just last year uh, for their offensive rating, Paul and Booker on the court together, they had a 119 offensive rating. When Payne and Booker were on the court together, so still another point guard, they had a 120 offensive rating. But when Booker was on the court with no other point guard, they had 125 offensive rating. So they actually performed better offensively with Booker as the primary ball handler last season than they did with him and any other combination uh, of point guards on the roster. So not only has their offense been fine with him playing point guard, it's actually outperformed the lineups with Chris Paul in the game as well, at least last season. Um, I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that two years ago when Chris Paul was still near his peak, but obviously he's declined a bit. Also, I think Bradley Beal is a lot better of an off-ball player than people are giving him credit for. He certainly has taken on a large burden over the past few seasons in Washington, and he's done a a pretty good job. Obviously, it's not led to winning. I don't think anyone thinks Bradley Beal is a number one option. I think there's a lot of people who don't even think he's a number two option. Uh, I think I was in that camp, uh, certainly in the number one option camp, but the number two option, I was... uh, kind of there too. I, look, I'm, I'm not going to sit here and act like I was the highest guy on Bradley Beal in the world, <laughs> but I think this move is going to benefit him a lot. So like, for example, his three-point shooting the past few seasons has dipped quite a bit. Um, his last six seasons, which is the really the since the first season John Wall started having major injuries, he's only shot 35% from three on above uh, six attempts per game. And he even had as low as 30% two years ago. He had a below 35% season as well. But if you look at his first five seasons in the league, and all of those had a healthy John Wall pretty much in his peak. So uh, a clear other distributor, ball handler, star player playing next to him. He shot 40% from three in those first five seasons on five attempts. So when he was able to play a little bit more off ball, and get more catch-and-shoot opportunities. He was among the best three-point shooters in the whole league, and I think the reason his uh, percentage has been down is because he's having to create more of those three-point opportunities himself. Uh, And a lot of that just has to do with shot selection and the type of threes he's taken. So just to put into perspective, last season alone, in in a half-court setting, Beal had only 102 catch-and-shoot shots in the half-court, uh, in the whole season. So that's, he played 50 games. That's two a game. And he had 314 off the dribble jump shots in the half court. So that's basically 75% of his jump shots were coming off the dribble on a pull up and only 25% were on the catch and shoot. And I think that split was going to be significantly closer. I don't know if it's going to be, I don't know what it'll be. It might be 50%. It could still be only maybe a third of his shots are coming off catch and shoot. But that's still a huge difference because, for example, he shot 49% on wide open catch and shoot shots last year. If 
even if he shoots a little below that, if he's in the 42, 43% range and he gets close to 50% of his shots, um, jump shots coming on catch and shoots, he's going to massively increase his efficiency from three point range. And honestly, overall, because his two point percentage is way up from what it was earlier in his career. And that's just because he's become a, a better shot creator, getting his own shot, going to the basket, mid range shots. But if you add that on top of the um, three point potential he has, uh, shooting more catch and shoots, uh, catch and shoot shots with Booker and Durant getting all the attention, I think he's going to benefit greatly. I don't think he's going to come in here and average 30 points again. I'm not even sure he's going to average the 23 that he did last year. But hey, if he is averaging 18, 19 points a game and able to bump that up to 25 on nights where Booker or Durant aren't playing, for example, but he's and he's shooting 40% from three, close to 50 from two, then he's going to be a phenomenal player for this team. And like I said, everyone knows that he's not a number one. And like I said, he might not even be good enough to be a number two unless you have like a Jokic type guy. And I think being the third option is something that people have been wanting to see out of him for a really long time. So I that's why I don't really understand the whole, we don't love the fit. I'm like, we've been begging to have Bradley Beal as a, a second or third option on a good team for years. And it's finally happening and people still aren't really um, loving the fit. But whatever. I think he's going to get significantly better looks, both in terms of how open he is, the shot profile of catch and shoots versus off the dribble. And then that's not even to mention that the third best defender is going to be guarding him almost every single night because you have to put the first two on Booker and Durant. And then also, just from a value perspective, this was probably one of the more lopsided trades we've seen in a long time. I mean, just a year ago, this guy received a super max and likely would have gotten a max contract for multiple other teams. A year or two ago, he would have been traded for a Donovan Mitchell-type package with three, maybe even four first-round picks. I don't know. Instead, the Suns give up a 38-year-old player that they probably were going to cut anyway might not even have brought back a role player in Landry Shamet, who basically every single fan base that's ever had him has hated him. Uh, <laughs> and as a Suns fan, I can uh, I can attest, not <laughs> certainly not a fan favorite. Um, and then they didn't even give up a single first-round pick. Obviously, they didn't have any to give, but th the fact that they were able to do that is amazing. So e let's even if you hate this trade, given the context of the team and the new CBA, I understand the sort of not liking it from that perspective. But there's actually no argument to be made that the Suns didn't completely fleece the Wizards from a value perspective, at least in a vacuum. And honestly, I think two things can be true. It can be true that Bradley Beal is overpaid and that he's likely past his prime and that he's not been particularly durable as of recently and that he's uh, clearly not a number one option and probably not a number two option and that his contract is awful and he's two to three in two to three years it's going to look even worse. Um, and the limitations that the Suns have long term are greater because I, when I was saying that. It doesn't limit their flexibility. I meant for this season, it was going to be like this. But three years from now, this absolutely limits their flexibility 100%. They've got four guys making $30 million or more under contract for at least three more seasons. So all of that can be true. But at the same time, it can also be true that Bradley Beal was by far the best player the Suns could have acquired this offseason. 
And regardless of if they made this trade or not, they had zero flexibility to add to their roster this season outside of trading DeAndre. That was going to be true either way. The Suns also had a really good chance of being a second apron team regardless of if they made this move or not. And so in that sense, if you're going to go over, you might as well go way over because there's no penalty for how far you go over it. Um, And then lastly, it it can be true, all the things I said, and it can also be true that the Suns will be a better team this season than they would have been if they didn't make this trade. So while a lot of the concerns about this trade are fair and some of them probably are accurate, but given that they already went all in for Durant, that was the best path forward to get as close to contending as possible. What people don't realize is that the flexibility, the inflexibility and limitations were created with the Durant trade, not this trade. The, the inflexibility was already there, and this only, um, I mean, I don't. they're doubling down. And that's what they should do, though, because they already were in a situation where they weren't going to have many other moves. But... The pressure is obviously on with this team now. They have three years at least with Booker, Beal, Durant, and Aiden. They might trade Aiden, but all four of those guys have at least three years left. So they have a three-year window to try to compete. And if they don't even make the finals, this obviously is going to go down as a huge, huge failure. Um, One of the bigger ones we've seen in recent uh, memory. And honestly, a lot of people will say it's a failure even if they don't win a championship. Even though this is a team that's never won a, a ring before, it still people will view it that way. And honestly, that's fair. Last year, they had a little bit of a built-in excuse saying they just didn't get the reps together. There just wasn't a lot of um, continuity with the team. They only played eight regular season games with Durant. But that's not going to be there this year. They've got a full off season to integrate the guys, a new head coach, new system to bring in. But they've got all the time in the world to get ramped up there. But like I said, this is a team that has never won a championship. So I, what I will say is if this does result in a championship, even if it's not this year, any time in the next few years, then not only will this be a resounding success, like resounding, resounding success, but all of the main people involved in this are going to go down as legends for this team. I mean, James Jones might go down as the best GM in the history, Frank Vogel is going to get all the credit in the world because Monty Williams couldn't get it done. Beal will have his loser reputation totally wiped. Durant will get uh, validated and finally have a ring outside of Golden State. Booker probably goes down as the greatest son to ever play. And then Ishbia, I mean, if they win, this is all very hypothetical, but if they win, Ishpia is, I mean, <laughs> they are going to love that man forever, Phoenix is. And it's going to be really, 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 really hard to argue that he didn't make all the right moves. So, But again, very contingent. They could also not win it, and um, you could argue all the reverse of what I just said. But we, do, we just don't know. We don't know. And we also don't know how Beal is going to play as the third option. We just haven't seen it. We, we don't know. He could come out and... Be like, I got my money and I'll just kind of chill and do my thing, whatever, and be the same kind of not super high impact on winning guy. Or he might be super motivated. He might come out and be like, I got my money. It's time for me to win a ring. Look, I don't need to average 25. I'll take my 18, 19, 
and I'll engage a little bit more on defense and I'll do what the team needs me to do. Um, and so we, we just don't know. It, it's too early to call on a lot of these trades. So um, it'll be really fun and interesting to watch. But regardless, they're going to be really fun team to watch. A lot of offensive firepower uh, and a lot of pressure that comes with that. So, But moving to the Wizards side of things, I hate to say this for them, but this was one of the worst trades in NBA history for them, at least just from a value perspective and a timeline. Like I said, if they had traded Beal two years ago, they could have received probably at minimum two first-round picks, probably three first-round picks, and likely some good young talent as well. Um, I mean, if they, assuming they move Paul, Landry Shamit's going to be the best player they have to show for this, and they didn't get a single first-round pick. Uh, on top of that, the timing of this is just awful. It couldn't be worse because if they had done this last year, they would have been able to bottom out and had a really, really good chance at getting Wembenyama and at the worst case get Scoot Henderson, who's extremely coveted by a lot of teams across the league. And now they'll likely bottom out, but there is no prospect even remotely close to Wembenyama in this uh, coming year's draft next year in 2024. And it's honestly, it's largely thought of as a super weak draft class overall. One of the worst ones they've seen in years, probably comparable to the 2020 draft, which got some similar comps. But unfortunately for the new Wizards front office, they did not have a choice really. Uh, They kind of had to make a trade like this because of this no trade clause in the contract. And so I, I know as I'm shitting on this, I'm not shitting on the the new regime Michael Winger and uh, Will Dawkins the new GM and president of basketball operations they were able to get what they could because they were completely constrained based on the no trade clause they were put in an impossible situation so I want to just preface that my hate here is directed towards the previous uh, (laughs) front office for giving the no trade clause because there was just no need to give it there's just no need to give it. I think this is going to go down as an extremely cautionary tale, and I doubt we ever see a no-trade clause ever again. And if we do, it better be for, like, when Benyama turns into the goat and he gets it because he's that good. <laughs> Not for a guy like Beal, three-time All-Star. Um, but, man, because of this no-trade, I mean, he was basically able to handpick his team. And not only that, he could handpick the package as well. So like I said with that, I do not blame the new GM for just trying to get a clean slate and cutting ties no matter how bad the return was. Uh, I mean, given the no-trade situation, they this was probably the best they could do because even though Miami had a better package with picks, it seemed like towards Beal was basically putting on a, like a recruitment session and he was only going to approve a trade to the team he wanted and that ultimately was Phoenix after he spoke to all the interested teams. Not to mention that Miami, I think, was not being very aggressive because I think secretly they didn't want to get Beal because they are hoping that Dame will ask out and they'd rather have him, which I prefer that fit for them anyway. I think this makes more sense if they do get him. Plus, the Suns can't, they just don't have the assets to get Beal, or sorry, Dame. So it made sense for them to go hard for Beal because it was really the only star of his caliber that they were going to be able to afford given the no trade clause. But if I'm the Wizards moving forward, I would just continue with this. They got a clean house, man. I would try to sign and trade Kuzma. I know that it's been reported he's going to opt out of his $13 million option, which he probably should because I think he can get a raise on that. 
And I think it'll be good for the Wizards because there's not a lot of teams with a ton of cap space that can sign him outright. So if he wants to go anywhere that's even a remotely winning situation, he's going to need to sign and trade, which the Wizards can then get some assets back. I will assume that Porzingis is going to pick up his player option, $36 million. A lot of people have said that. Uh, so I would trade him as well. I think you'd get a decent package for him, at least like a pick and a young player, something like that. He had a pretty good year last year, and I actually like Porzingis. Uh, he's someone I thought maybe the Suns should have gone for for uh, Aiton type trade, but obviously that is off the table now. I've heard some Celtics fans uh, talk about interest on on that front, and he's been rumored with the Blazers a bit as well. So I don't know where he'll end up, but I would I would honestly think probably outside of Washington, but we'll see. And in addition to that, I would reach out to teams that have awful contracts and offer to take them off their hand first picks. So like if I'm if I'm the Wizards, I'm hitting up the Nets Im- immediately and being like, we will take Ben Simmons from y- you if you give us a pick or two. And if I'm the Nets, I'd I'd consider it. Maybe give them one of the Suns uh, picks, one of the ones that's gonna, that they have like a swap on or something because um, it's going to probably be in the, the late 20s anyway. Um, but I think they've been needing to do this for years, and unfortunately, they just didn't time it right. They didn't time it right with the Beal contract. They didn't time it right with the uh, Wembenyama draft. They just didn't do what they need to do. They should not have given him in the no trade clause. And so I think this is really going to set them back for years. I mean, if they had done this exact trade two years ago, or not exact trade because it would be a different term, but if they had traded Beal like a year before his free agency – they could have probably gotten so many picks, so many picks. And if they really wanted to, they could have went for a full picks package, not get any good players back. They could have done the same thing, trading Kuzma and Porzingis a year early, and they could have bottomed out to try to get Wembenyama. But instead, here they are. They're going to be one of the worst teams in the league next year, but not a lot of top prospects for them to have their eyes set on and not a lot of flexibility to... um, do anything but just be really bad in the foreseeable future and then moving over to Chris Paul um, I don't see any scenario where he stays on the Wizards I mean he's going to be 39 by next season by the end of next season in in the the playoffs he'll turn 39 he got most of his money guaranteed anyway they had to guarantee up to 25 million of his 30 in order to make the salaries match on this deal and the Wizards will probably want to go to, with a youth movement and tank, despite the report that they would actually be somewhat interested in Chris Paul staying. But I just don't see it. I think Chris Paul, they're going to do right by him, just given his stature in the league and let him at least have some say in where he goes if they trade him, or they might just buy him out and uh, he'll be able to sign wherever he wants. And to me, it seems most likely that he ends up in L.A. with either the Clippers or Lakers. I think the fit on the Clippers is a little bit better. Because they've honestly needed a point guard for years. Um, since they've had this Kawhi Paul George era, they've never really had a good one. They've cycled through a bunch between Russ, John Wall, Reggie Jackson. And I think it's been one of the big reasons that they haven't been able to get over the hump, outside of injuries at least. And I think Paul would just be great for them. Uh, they have the depth to withstand him playing maybe a little less minutes or even load managing a bit next year. Uh, and they've needed a table setter to get shooters the ball to run pick and rolls with their bigs to get quiet and Paul George the ball in their spots so they can play a little bit less iso ball um and he does all those things he'd be a perfect fit in my opinion obviously he played there before so there's a little bit of the nostalgia factor there those were some of his best years probably the prime of his career was there so 
I could see that being a, a good destination for him. As well as with the Lakers, uh, I know he's a little bit redundant with LeBron, but I think both of those guys are good enough and smart enough to figure it out, whereas like him and Russ weren't a great fit, but Russ wasn't smart enough to <laughs> figure it out. Uh, but Chris Paul's already started playing a little bit more off ball this past year uh, once the Suns got Kevin Durant, and then we've seen him be a, a little less ball dominant in Houston when he was playing with Harden. And I, I know people like to say that didn't work out. That team, they were better than people give them credit for. They nearly won a championship. If Chris Paul doesn't get hurt, they probably beat the Warriors and end up winning it. But we also saw LeBron defer a bit more in the playoffs uh, this past season to guys like Austin Reeves even. And it seems like he might be okay with taking a step back just in terms of being uh, the ball-dominant guy that we're used to him being. There's been reports saying that he kind of wants to settle into a slightly more off-ball role, which I think could be good for him, at least from a not-breaking-down standpoint, like we've seen him get injured over the past few years. I think Paul would be a big upgrade over D'Angelo Russell. As you all know, I'm not a D'Lo fan. He's probably one of the players I've hated on the most. Um and look, Paul's not a great defender at this point in his career, but the Lakers do have enough guys, in my opinion, to be able to hide him on that end of the floor. I mean, we've seen how dominant Anthony Davis can be defensively just in this past playoff run. Um, Jared Vanderbilt was really good for them defensively last year, and they've got a number of other guys who are at least competent on that end of the floor, more so than like with the Suns last year uh, where they couldn't really hide Paul as well. And similarly to the Clippers, they do have some pretty good depth at this point, especially if they bring most of their guys back from last year. So I think they'd be able to limit his workload in minutes more so than um, some of the other teams that I'll, I'll name could. So um, obviously the biggest concern with either of these teams is <laughs> injuries. Both the Clippers and Lakers have been probably two of the most injury-prone teams over the last three, four years. And Chris Paul obviously is not going to help that a ton. Um but I don't think that's a reason to not pursue someone. Like I said earlier, I mean, Paul's honestly been healthier than people give him credit for. I mean, he played, he's played at least 58 games every single year of his entire career, which is like the high end of what Beals played over the last four years, for example. But he played 59 last year with Phoenix, 65 the year before. So he would have qualified for the new um, award limit or lower bound. And then he played 70 out of 72 with Phoenix in 2021. He was at 70 again with OKC. So he really has been a lot healthier than people want to give him credit for. I know he's broken down in the playoffs a lot of these years, but I think if they could play him more like 20 to 25 minutes, then he might be better prepared to last in the playoffs and maybe do a little bit of some load management. Uh, there's been other teams that have either been linked to him or I think would be good fits. I think he would have been a great fit on the Bucks, but I think that would only happen if he got a buyout and wanted to go there to try and win a ring. But I, I think it's highly unlikely he stays somewhere on the East Coast or even Midwest because he wants to be close to his family in L.A. That kind of goes the same with the Celtics. I think he'd be a phenomenal fit for them. He's kind of exactly what they need, similar to the Clippers. Just haven't had a true point guard in the, on this team throughout their uh, core being together. But again, I, I'd be shocked if he went up to Boston. And then I think Miami could be a good fit, just sort of in that Lowry spot. So they'd probably have to do a trade, like swap Lowry for Paul. But one, I don't think it'll happen because I think they, like I said, they got their eyes set on Dame and they wouldn't want Paul and Dame because they can't play those guys together uh, from a defensive standpoint. Um, and plus, like I said, I just think he's going to stay in the West Coast. I've heard the Grizzlies mention as well. 
with Ja being out. But again, I just don't think it's realistic. So ultimately, I think at this stage of his career, he's only going to want to be on a West Coast team as close to L.A. as possible. And the two best fits from a contender standpoint and a roster standpoint are the two L.A. teams. So I would be very surprised if he did not end up on one of those teams. But that's going to do it for this episode. Um, a lot to cover over the next few weeks. We've got the NBA draft on Thursday. So I will be releasing my preview of the draft beforehand. I'll talk about who I think is going to be an all-star from this draft, who's going to be a bust, and who is going to be just a fine role player, as well as some mid to late first-round picks and even some second-round pick guys that I personally like myself and could see being some late steals but uh hopefully we get some more trades over the next few days i know we normally get some around draft time so if there is some i'll cover those on the draft recap episode as well but i did have to just address this one because this was probably one of the bigger trades we were going to end up seeing this offseason between the player Beals Caliber and uh, Chris Paul who's now been traded for the fifth time in his career which probably is like the most ever for uh, <laughs> a player of his caliber but with that being said thank you so much for listening uh, and I will chat with you soon thanks